Makers of Sport Podcast, Episode 86, with John Kostakos. And welcome to episode 86 of the Makers of Sport podcast. I'm your host, Adam Martin, at T. Adam Martin on Twitter. A uh, quick bit of housekeeping for any of you that are curious in the skips and sequence numbers in your podcast app, those missing episodes are actually halftime episodes, which are only available to community members at this time. I'll explain more about the community at the end of this episode, but if you are interested in learning more, you can check out makersofsport.com slash community or listen to episode 65, where I explain the launch of the community and the benefits of it. On this episode, I am very happy to welcome John Kostakos to the podcast. John is one half of the legendary poster company, the Kostakos Brothers, a sports poster company that sold 30 million posters. As art director of the company, John was in charge creatively of the many iconic posters that adorned the bedroom walls of many sports-obsessed older millennials and younger Gen Xers. Athletes such as Sean Kemp, Charles Barkley, Joe Montana, Bo Jackson, Walter Payton, Wayne Gretzky, Michael Jordan, and many, many more Hall of Famers have been the subject of the Costacos Brothers posters. Today, the posters actually sell for thousands of dollars from art galleries. The UFC's Dana White actually once bought an entire gallery of posters. Uh, in a roundabout way, this podcast may have never even existed, honestly, without the Costacos brothers having never started their poster company as they were some of the true pioneers of sports design, marketing, and art direction. Welcome to the show, John. So glad we finally were able to make this happen. Thanks. I'm happy to be here with you. So, John, usually I let users take this time to give a brief overview of their path leading up to today and talking about their current work. However, your career is something that I want to d- deep dive much more into. Uh, as a 33-year-old, your posters obviously adorned the walls of my bedroom and honestly, I think in some way contributed to my love of sports and art, even if subconsciously. Tell us a little bit about your pre-college and college experience and then how Costacos Brothers got started in the parking lots of University of Washington football games. Well... I, uh, I was just a sports fan growing up. And, you know, growing up and being a teenager in the 70s, there weren't a lot of posters available. And, uh, you know, and, and there, was, there weren't very many games you could watch because, you know, we didn't have ESPN and didn't have a, it, it hadn't been developed as much. And so we, you, we grabbed everything we could. You know, if we had found a picture in Sports Illustrated of a player we liked, we put it on a wall, you know. The it's funny people asked me if I had any posters growing up. There were very few, but I did mail or I found one that I could mail order, and it was actually O.J. Simpson. Yeah, <laughs> it's the only poster I had as a kid. So, <laughs> uh, lots of jokes will be made out of that. Uh, right. Anyway, um, I we couldn't have posters, so it wasn't like I was particularly into posters, but I would say I I remember the things that I was interested in. If I if I could find a poster of it i'd buy it and but i loved sports and so did my brother and i i mean from the time i was i remember watching the olympics when i was seven years old everything about athletics i just loved and so 
I never really thought I'd have a career in it or anything like that. And I, I studied business at the University of Washington. And, and then um, I wanted to do something creative. So I started off in T-shirts. And my first shirt was a, was a right after I graduated, it was the Purple Rain shirt. I mean, it was at the time that Prince's Purple Rain was huge. And right. so I made... Uh, just playing words, R-E-I-G-N, and the defense of the University of Washington football team was, was top-notch that year, and so and I knew some of the guys on the team, so we nicknamed them the Purple Rain. They started selling T-shirts, and it was, I sold 23,000 shirts in a couple of months and didn't even know what I was doing. So I did realize at that point that I had a chance at doing something creatively with sports, because if you hit a hot market, it can take off. So I talked to my brother. We decided to do something together. We created Real Men Wear Black uh, for the Raiders, and we trademarked that. And but the difference between the college and the pros was for the university, we were able to print our own shirts. But for the NFL, we had to go through one of their licensed printers, so there wasn't enough margin in it. So just as luck would have it, I was talking to a girl at a store called The Locker Room in Seattle and who worked there and asked her how the shirts were selling and that sort of thing. And I asked her, what people ask for, what the customers ask for that, that you don't have. And she said, a poster of Kenny Easley, who was the Seahawks safety and defensive player of the year. And mm -hmm. so she said, uh, she told me that I called up the Seahawks and that was the beginning. And we may ended up making a poster through his agent. And that, that was the beginning. Wow. That's crazy. So you, you did mention that obviously being very passionate about sports and then you majored in business, but was there, was there a, what sort of struck that creative nerve? I mean, did you draw growing up? Like where, where did that part come from? No, I was like the worst art student I ever, <laughs> I was terrible at it. And so, um, I remember being in grade school seriously and being really, really bad at it. And I would see the people and the, and the girls in particular and the one guy in my class that was really, really good at it. So I was just terrible. And I remember thinking there's something wrong with me because here are the lines and I'm still drawing outside the lines, <laughs> which is probably descriptive of my mind, which is probably something that um, I may have been the luckiest person in the world to end up making posters because I got, I think we did things a little out of the ordinary and that's, you know, that's what I like. You know, I also liked words, though. That that was probably the most, it was probably the words that, because I think we would do something visually based on the play on words that we had with a, with a title for something. Because, you know, I don't know when it, had, when it hit me, but there was, I had to be watching a baseball game. And I, I know I heard the word designated hitter. They were announcing a designated hitter. And that's when I remembered thinking that, that should be a football player's poster. So who do we do that of? Okay, Ronnie Lott. And so what do you do visually with that? So the visual, I think, came after the, the play on the words after we came up with the title. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. So I think uh, what's interesting to me is today's sort of era of creative business in the internet, it's things are completely different. You can jump right in, start a t-shirt, a company on something called Shopify without even printing the shirts yet. You just throw up a picture, Photoshop it on there. And that type of thing. So you guys, obviously, there were a lot of hurdles you had to come over to to start this stuff. I actually went to school and majored in graphic design, and it's well, it's the major was actually art with an emphasis in graphic design. I remember, I remember my dad saying, "Can you make any money with that?" <laughs> when I decided that I was going to major in that, and how, and I can only imagine how crazy it was. Was it for you starting a poster design business back then? What did your parents think? Well, first of all, I've realized over time that anything creative, whether it's music or art or whatever. 
no parent ever says, do that, there's tons of money in it. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. No, no, parents are just like, oh, God, do something to back, you know, you know, as a backup or whatever. But I right. think um, my, my mom was just kind of wondering, I think she was at that point where the kids are done with, you know, with the boys are done with college and um, they're making t-shirts, you know, <laughs> I think that that was just a little bit below, um, <laughs> below her expectations. Right. I think. Um, but I, I think more than that, I think she's, didn't want to seem, you know, I think, I think she's a Greek mother. Okay. She probably had, you know, visions of me, you know, wearing coveralls and sweating and actually printing my own shirts. Yeah, you know, that's yeah. what I was going to do for a living. You right. Know? What, what about the entrepreneurial aspect? I mean, did your, were your, was your parents entrepreneurs at all? Like where did that's, that part in itself is something that many people won't take on. That comes from my dad. Cause my dad is very entrepreneurial. He started his own business, uh, you know, in, in car rental, starting the parking, the car rental business. And he, you know, his ups and downs, but overall it's been very good to him. But he was, he was very entrepreneurial and he, and he, his amazing work ethic. And my mom was really supportive. My dad just, he just worked harder than anybody I knew. And so he was a big believer in starting something on your own because he said, you're your own boss. You can make your hours if you want. And he did tell me the one thing you have to realize is if you own your own business you tend you generally are going to work more hours in a week than if you work for somebody else right even though you don't have to you do yeah and holidays i mean you know it's like you you can drop everything and go play golf if you want but you don't because there's like a passion (laughs) that's there you know what 30 years ago this week you know what i was doing on on Thanksgiving, I was rolling posters. <laughs> I mean, seriously, it was our very first year, and I and um and it was Steve Largent posters because that was one that we had shot in, in the middle of the season, and it just got them printed. And I'm literally rolling posters uh, on on Thanksgiving Day because we had to get a bunch of boxes because we hadn't got we'd gotten a few deliveries out the day before on Wednesday before Thanksgiving, and we had a couple that we that we didn't get done so we were we were <laughs> we were rolling posters that day and I had to get up the next morning really early to put them in a truck and actually deliver them to some of the customers for Black Friday yeah <laughs> well as, uh, as someone that does client work um, I always find that some of my best times working are like the December 23rd late at night because I know that nobody's gonna bother me Right, like everybody's doing their own thing. <laughs> <That's> true. <laughs> so That's it's like true. super quiet. I'm not going to get any emails or special requests. <laughs> when you're doing something creative, that's like the quiet time is the best time. Mm-hmm. It really is, because well, at least for me, because when I'm trying to create something, it, I get distracted really easily, which, which is you know, I'm, <laughs> outside the lines. I think it's normal a personality. Uh, as a creative person, a personality honestly. type. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just it's just uh, uh, I can get distracted real easily, and so I I've, I've learned lately that I have to turn my phone off if I'm doing something creative because I don't want to lose. If I'm in a good place creatively, I don't want to lose that. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. So you did mention earlier that the first T-shirt you did was for the Washington football team and was inspired by Prince's Purple Rain, and it's actually kind of an interesting juxtaposition that. Um, I think most of us know this past year Prince passed away and then you guys had sort of been 
gone for 20, 25 years. And then all of a sudden the Costacos brothers are back and we see the, we see your posters again. <laughs> What's the, well, yeah. is there any weird little juxtaposition to that for you? Have you thought about that at all? Yes. We, we, I, when Prince died, I remember like just in talking about it because it came up, you know, in conversation over the next week or two with people, you know, cause it was all over the news. And I remember I had this moment, I was talking to Tom Reese, who was, he ran our production. He was a really great creative guy, and he's one of my close friends. And I, I realized, I said, you know what? If it weren't for Prince, I wouldn't know you. Because I wouldn't have been making posters, and I didn't know him before. And so I started thinking about all the people that I met that are my friends, and some of my really close friends, but just tons of people that I know or see or hang out with that I wouldn't know had I not been in that business because I met them through that business. And they weren't all people that worked for me. They were people, you know, that, that were involved, you know, from at the printers and at the color separators and photographers that are really good friends of mine. And it all came from print. So in the credit line on the Russell Wilson poster, we did what we normally did. We, we thanked everybody that helped mm-hmm. us on the shoot. Uh, but we did a small credit line all the way across the bar. It was the longest credit line we ever did. And we thanked everybody, and then we thanked Kenny Easley. Uh, the last two sentences were, and Kenny Easley for giving a couple of guys with a with no experience in a dream a chance. And then the last two words were, and Prince. That's awesome, because man. I, I didn't even realize it, that. It was Prince. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy so, how things sort of lead to other things in our careers. And uh, I mean, the, even the fact, you know, the SB Nation uh, video about you guys came out but that was this year, right? Wasn't that post Prince or was that previous? No, that came out a couple years ago. Oh, okay. Okay. I must've just stumbled on it later. later that was fun. Yeah, that's great. I, and actually I'll put a link in the show notes for people that, that haven't seen that yet. Um, that's actually, to be honest, that's where I discovered that you guys were the ones that created all of those posters. I, I, I didn't know. I mean, cause you, you got to think I was, you know, eight, years old or whatever. I mean, you didn't really, we didn't really care who did the stuff, right? It was just like, oh, this is cool. Here's Michael Jordan dunking the moon. That's like going up in my room, you know? And that wall space yeah. is, is super, super important to, to kids. I do want to talk. So you mentioned, you know, you did your first poster um, and just have, you know, obviously we talked for an hour yesterday or the other day, and, and this is another little little tip for listeners. We, we chatted for a while um, about many different <laughs> interesting topics uh, and then had to break and come back and actually do the interview. But, but I know that you sort of have the personality of, of getting after it, you know, just like go out, get it done. And even in that documentary from SB Nation, you can tell like you were, you were sort of the creative brain and you positioned the athletes where they needed to go and that type of thing. So I'm curious what it was like when you first started doing that, was there, was there any type of uh, intimidation involved? Because now you're going from like just creating some, I think most of us, when we work in sports, in the beginning, you sort of have that uh, fanboy, I guess, tendency. You're like, oh, this is really cool. That's so-and-so over there. But then you, get, you become numb to it, right? So I'm curious like how those first interactions went. Because you guys were working with major, major stars. Yeah, it, it was, it was kind of weird to get big stars at the beginning the um but part of it part of it was because we were learning so much we didn't have an experience any experience in in graphic design or photography or printing or anything so we had so much that we needed to learn and when we shot the kenny easley poster that we he recommended corky truen who's a seahawks photographer and he we shot that on eight by ten inch slide film I mean, it was a huge box camera, and we shot 10 takes. 
And the reason we want we did that is because he said, look, it's going to grow. It's going to it's going to you're going to be able to blow it up better without it being too grainy. And then later on, we learned that we could shoot it on uh, what it was basically four by five film and then two and a quarter uh, transparency film. And so, you know, and still blow it up and have it be not be too grainy but 30, blowing up from 35 was so all of that and printing and rolling and rolling without creasing the stuff and finding tubes to get them in and that whole learning we had so much to learn that i think we were focused on that more than anything else so it made us we didn't have time to be in awe of the players but kenny easley as the first guy he is clearly by far the most intimidating guy that we met in all the years <laughs> because he's a big guy he's serious he's not mean or anything but he's just really serious as a football player he was mean i mean like nobody wanted to get hit by him but that was kind of baptized baptism by fire for us because he was he was he was <laughs> that intimidating right but i think we just saw it as a job that we wanted to do and mate you know fear is a great motivator and fear of failing fear of having that shot with a big huge nfl star who was one? He was in the. I think he was the second player taken in the draft, something like that. But he was. We just wanted to do a good job, and I remember it, it was all. It was all learning, preparing, getting the thing ready, troubleshooting it. What if this goes wrong? Do we have a backup? You know, and, every, and Cork even had a different camera as a backup in case something went wrong. Uh, we rented fog machines, but we rented two fog machines to make sure. What if one of them went went bad? Because back then, 1986. There's no, there's no way you're going to recreate fog in Photoshop in 1986. Right, 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 yeah. I think was it even created yet? I mean, I think it was no, created around no, that was, time. Yeah, it was after that, and so we didn't have anything like that. All that digital stuff started happening in the early 90s, but it was so it was it, it was just a job. And I remember my brother and I still talk about this. We went, we shot it down by the stadium, and there's a. a a place, a restaurant right near there that's still there called FX McQuarrie's. And we went to have a beer afterwards at, at, at FX. We were looking at each other and going, Did, are we dreaming this? Did we really sh just shoot a poster with Kenny Easley? <laughs> yeah, holy cow. Yeah. And I think that was the, the, the moment, that was the, that was when we became in awe because it was, I think we were too busy and too scared to even know to, to feel that way throughout. right yeah you're, you're just on you're grinding it out and then it's all of a sudden you get a time to think about it and process yeah and i think that was good for us because we you know shortly after that we shot lester hayes and he was a really easygoing guy and uh we still stay in touch with him he's he's a blast he he's he's really really fun for the raiders but he he was easygoing and um and then a month later we, sh we shot jim mcmahon and that was that was a white knuckle ride to get it at the to get it <laughs> we had three days that we could shoot it and it was there were thunderstorms forecast for the entire time we shot it outdoors and we got it in a really small window where it wasn't raining yeah and you had a bear cub on that one right oh yeah so how does that happen <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh greeks it's the greek connection we had a we had a couple of friends so the Kostakos brothers called the Canopiotis brothers who lived in Arlington Heights at the time, uh, in, in right outside Chicago, and we called him and we're like, um, "We just got a phone call back from Jim McMahon's agent, and we're gonna we have to shoot it uh, within nine days." And they said, "Hey, what can we do to help?" Because at that time, you know, 1986, how do you find production equipment and people and everything in Chicago? Well, 
we didn't have a whole lot of options. There's no internet, right? Right. So our options were to go to the library and get the Chicago Yellow Pages and start making phone calls. We called those guys first. They said, well, what do you need? And it was like, well, here's a list. Uh, we want to shoot at the stadium. We need to get a permit to, to use, you know, shoot at the stadium. We want to shoot it on one of these three dates. We need uh, a photographer. We need a power generator tr- truck. We need a fog machine. We need about 30 guys to be extras in the movies uh, with, like, leather jackets, that sort of thing. Uh, navy blue helmets, bears navy blue, but with no logos on them. And uh, five trucks and a live bear cup or a live bear. <laughs> And they were like, they said, well, um, and they, they just said, okay, well, yeah, let us get to work on it. And 24 hours later, within a day, those guys got on the phone. They found everything but the bear and told us they think they found the bear. And they the next day called us and said, yeah, we got the bear. Just tell us the date the guy's bringing it down from Wisconsin. I'm like, you actually got a bear. <laughs> I was more, <laughs> that was on the wish list, not the demand list. And yeah, he said the guy rents uh, animals for photo- photography purposes. So. That's crazy. Well, I think it's what's crazy about it to me is hearing these stories about pre-Photoshop because all of us today sort of have this. I mean, that probably would never ever happen. We would just have to Photoshop in a bear. And I think yeah. if you even think about the athletes today, the scenarios you were getting these guys to agree to were you know potentially unsafe <laughs> for athletes. Yeah, we blew up bombs behind Herschel Walker. Yeah, they I mean, were it's, big old it's bombs crazy. That blew up forty feet in the air. When there's yeah. and today athletes won't even compete in like the NBA dunk contest, right? Because they're afraid they'll get hurt, <laughs> yeah. or or play at Rucker Park, you know, in in, uh, in Harlem. Uh, because you you know you hear these old stories about Dr. J and all these guys going and playing at Rucker Park outside. Guys won't even play outside anymore because of fear of getting hurt. And the fact that you're able to convince these guys to do these <laughs> sort of outrageous things in the background. So how did that conversation go with with Mad Mac about like, hey man, by the way, we're gonna bring this bear. He's one of the most fearless people I've ever met. He's he's man. He we could have brought a snake and he would have just gone. Okay, I think he would have. He would have just said so. Uh, he would have probably just asked something very casual. Is that thing poisonous? You know, I don't know. He didn't. He didn't. He he showed up. We're like, here's the cub, and he's like, all right, what do you want me to do? He was really. He wasn't scared at all. Yeah, that was just really funny because we there were there were times where like, we shot one with Xavier McDaniel from the Sonics, mm-hmm. uh, and we had a Doberman in it, and that and the dog, it was it wasn't. It was. It growled a lot. It was. It didn't bark, and it, was, it didn't seem vicious, but it growled a lot. And a growling Doberman is a little scary to be around. Even though the handler said, "No, don't worry," it's still a little scary. And, and we were all scared of the dog, but, but X wasn't. He just said, "Let's go. Let's shoot." And then we had one where Patrick Ewing. We shot the Madison Square Guardian, um, and we shot that in a studio. Mm-hmm. And the the two Dobermans, they were police dogs, and he just wasn't really comfortable with the dogs. And he was he he just he just wasn't comfortable with him, <laughs> and even though the dogs were pretty well behaved, he just I had a thing with dogs or, or German shepherds at least, and I just told him, listen, we don't need to have the dog; we can take the dogs out of the shot. And, and I, for a guy that was really that naturally having anxiety about the dogs, he just said, no, let's let's do it. So we had a few situations like that. We had one where Eric Dickerson fell on his back; he walked onto the set. He was luckily he was in his uniform, mm-hmm. and I don't know what happened, but the the there was something. The floor was slick. The, it was a linoleum floor, and I don't know if it was the fog from the fog machine we've been testing. 
his feet went out from under him. Like it was like a, a Warner Brothers cartoon with a banana peel, you know. Somebody falls on there, and he, he literally pancaked right onto his back. Wow, which is a little scary. But yeah, um, the photographer, the photographer Chris Savas, he it was just silent. Everybody, Chris went over. He looked down at him. Get up, get up. You're tougher than that. And that, <laughs> and Eric started laughing. Oh my God. Wow, could you imagine a photographer talking to people like that today? <laughs> yeah, I mean, these kids would walk right out. Did you speak? Did you guys work with? Did you develop a relationship with one particular photographer, or did you just have a few in different cities? Well, we we generally worked with the team photographers because they the players know them, and and that helps. But what a lot of those guys, the you know, sports action photography is a real art. Knowing when when to fire and when to you know and where to position yourself. Those guys are. They're unbelievable at that kind of thing. Some some of them needed a little more help in the lighting side mm-hmm. because they weren't they weren't most of their time was spent on the field or on the court and not in the studio. And so the best the best thing for us in general was the shooting it with a sports photographer who knows that the player's not going to stay in the studio for eight hours. Most studio photographers are just used to the whoever the the talent is being there for right. a long time. Yeah. And the ball players, they don't want to be there for four hours. And part of the reason, I think there are two two things that were, helped us be really successful were that we treated the players like people, and um, we treated them like like just everyday guys and gave them crap like you would any other guy, and, yeah. And had fun with them, and we didn't treat them like they were, you know, we didn't put them on a pedestal. And the second thing is we got them in and out of there fast. Yeah, and so we we prepped because with no Photoshop or anything like that, there was a thing called a Cytex machine. It was like the size of a wall, and it was like, and it and you could do some digital manipulation. I don't know if it was digital, but it was some sort of manipulation. But it was six hundred dollars an hour, and it was like one hour to move a football that was out of the shot and place it in this shot. That was easily one hour's work. Yeah, and so and by that by the standard six hundred dollars an hour thirty years ago. That was expensive, so we had to have everything perfect in the shot, and we didn't have. We had to have because all the the flip racks where all the posters go, or were twenty four by well, they're about twenty four by thirty six. Some of them were twenty three by thirty five inches. So we standardized our poster size. The first year was twenty four thirty six, but the following year twenty three thirty five, and we stuck with that. So everything has to be in the same frame, and so. You have to frame it perfectly. Everything has to be in the shot. So we had a box, a uh, little cutout box, uh, just black construction paper that we were looking through the viewfinder behind the camera so that we could actually make sure that everything was absolutely in the frame that we needed, all the little details. That's crazy. So when you look at like the one with LT where he's like shooting, firing off the lasers or whatever, I mean, how is that? How was I mean, that? That was like then? that was amazing special effects <laughs> for that time. <laughs> it was funny because I, I look at the old posters, and to me, it's sort of like the difference between watching Avatar and the original Ghostbusters. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, because that was really cool special effects on the, at that time, uh, the original Ghostbusters. So the old, we learned we learned a few things that you could do. Um, we learned what you could do with an airbrush artist and we learned what you could do in a photo studio. And I don't remember 
who we talked to, but we thought, hey, could we do this? What could we do to make a laser effect in this? I think it was a combination of something that was done in a photo lab along with an airbrush. And so we would we came up with a name for the player, then said, what do we do visually? And we'd give a few different options, and then we'd get agreement with the player on that. And then I guess as we were trying to figure out the options, we'd say, hey, can we do lasers? You know, And so... Uh, <laughs> So that's how, that was fun. That, there's a funny story out there. We we took grenade. We went to a, a army surplus store, which for anything that was you know, army surplus store is really fun for props. Mm-hmm. And so we went to this this army surplus store in New Jersey to get hand grenades, the pineapple grenades. And then what we'd do is unscrew the the pineapple part, and then we bought these little plastic footballs, and cut the tips off on the end and then screw those in so there were little football grenades, right? And um, we, we actually enjoyed making the props. And so I'm in there and I buy in the hand grenades and the guy, I mean, they're empty old army surplus grenades. And I said to the guy, you know, he said, leans over the counter and he says to me, uh, do you want them filled? And I said, what? <laughs> and he leans over kind of quietly and he goes, uh, you want them filled? I'm like, the grenades? And he goes, yeah. I mean, you mean so they'll blow up? And he goes, yeah. I'm like, no, but how much would that cost? And he said, about 50 bucks a piece. I'm like, oh, okay, good to know. It's good to know, yeah. <laughs> for for, for just, just 50 bucks, that's... <laughs> and it's just even funnier that it was in New Jersey. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. It's so fun. What, so what did, I mean, all these props, like did you guys just have a prop room at an office? Where, I mean, what happened to them when they were done? Did you throw them away? <laughs> We now we gave them. We usually gave them to people that that worked for us or people mm-hmm. that worked on it, and um, and it was just more like you know we thought like we, it just wasn't going to be a good idea to ask the players to sign them. We rarely ask players to sign anything, and we told everybody don't ask for autographs when you're there. Yeah. We'd finish the Keep shoot. Keep it professional. Have, yeah, yeah, and. And most of those guys, they liked working with us, and they would have signed those. And even if we told them that we could, that we, you know, send them for auctions and things like that, mm-hmm. sports auctions weren't, you know, like sports charity auctions and things like that. Or sports items, we started to get asked for things occasionally. So we'd ask the players to sign posters for the charity auctions, but it was generally let's get a shot of the whole crew with the player at the end, and then ask him once it was done. Uh, if he'd sign one for the company, and that's pretty much it. And I think they liked that. But all those props, we just kind of gave away to everybody. And and then over time, you know, I looked around to see what I, you know, looking through boxes and go, oh wow, I remember this. And what was this one from? And then I I know people who are fans of a particular poster, and I would give them to them. Yeah. Well, speaking of props, uh, I got a kick out of the uh, Chicago Vice one. Where Walter Payton basically had an arsenal. Oh, man. <laughs> let's hear, let's hear that story. You should, okay, so there are two things with that. Um, one, we'd worked with McMahon. We hadn't worked with Walter Payton. So we just, the Chicago Vice thing was just, I mean, Miami Vice was so huge. So uh, they liked it. And we never met Walter Payton. So we shot the thing at Soldier Field. Walter Payton, we were going to shoot it with, with footballs in their hands instead of guns. And Walter McMahon's early, and Walter shows up at six o'clock, which is when we're going to shoot. And he has a suit, and we his guys had brought his Lamborghini. That was his Lamborghini that was uh, that his shoe company Kangaroos gave to him when he when he broke the rushing record 
the Jim Brown record, I think. And so it's on the field, and you know, and it's we're out in Chicago. We're paying I don't know how much an hour to have the stadium lights on and all that kind of stuff. And so we want to shoot. Anyway, Walter shows up and he comes into the locker room, and I'm like, I get to meet Walter Payton for the first time, which is pretty cool, right? And so he comes in, and I told him, look. We have a slight delay. We'll still have you out of here in time. And he said, what's the problem? And I told him that we, the, it was cold and the, the camera wasn't firing the strobe. So Bill Smith, who was the Bulls and Bears photographer, I think, I think he still is. Bill, I, I told him Bill because he knew Bill. I said, Bill, I had to run out and get a different camera or a different lens because the lens wasn't firing the strobe. There was probably some moisture and it was freezing it. And, uh, and he looked at me and... McMahon's drink. He's eating pizza and drink. He he because he asked for pizza and Moosehead beer. He, yeah, we always had Moosehead beer on McMahon shoots. So he he uh, Walter goes. We're I'm supposed to be here at six, right? And I said, yeah, it's six. And he said, it's six o'clock, right? I said, yeah. And he goes, are we shooting? And I said, no, but we'll we're going to start about six forty-five, but we'll st- still have you out of here by seven thirty. And he said, look, I don't do business this way. You guys said six o'clock. And he's really calm. And he said, but I'm not. He goes, but and you're not ready to shoot. I don't do business this way. Bye. And he turns around and he starts walking to the door. And I looked over at McMahon to see for some help. And because at this moment, what am I going to do? I'm going to yell at Walter <laughs> Payton. Go, no, damn it, you're staying here. I'm going to kick your ass. Yeah. And he 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 walks out the door, and I'm looking at McMahon, and he's doing nothing. He's just drinking his beer and eating his pizza. <laughs> and the door opens back up, and Walter Payton's face. He just puts his face to the door and he smiles at him and he goes, no, just kidding. Oh, God. Like, <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> that's, and the, the funny thing is when you see that guy interviewed, he, you know, sweetness, he's, he's serious and soft-spoken. And he was soft-spoken, but he was really a funny guy. Yeah. He was, he was fun and he was funny. and he was. We called him Uncle Wally. All of us called him Uncle Wally because he's like your, your wise-ass uncle. Is that's how he got that nickname from us because he was great that way. So that was the first thing. It's the second thing we get out. So Walter, he goes, why don't, why don't we not use the footballs? I don't want to use the footballs. I said, why? He goes, come here. I had something better. And he goes over. He was right outside the door of the locker room. And he opens his trunk. And it was a, it was a silver Mercedes, I think. And the trunk opens up. And... There's like 20 guns just sitting in the trunk. <laughs> They're not in cases. They're not in anything. It, it just looked like... Remember in Terminator 2 when they like pull that, that, uh, big, that, that big chain in the, in the ground and then this whole huge lid lifts up and there's a big huge box full of every yeah. you know, big firearm? Mm-hmm. That's what his trunk looked like. <laughs> it was like big guns, small guns, everything. And, it, it was, and I just looked up at him and he saw the look of on my face of like... Are these Walter real? Payton and yeah, and guns. Yes, the whole the whole look, and he, and he said this big smile on his face, and so I'm like, okay, could we shoot with both? He goes, I don't want to shoot with footballs. This, these are more fun. These are more fun, and so uh, I said, okay, but we have to shoot some with the footballs. And he said, okay, and if you look at him, all the shots, I looked at him recently, all the shots with the footballs in their hands are bad, and I think those guys deliberately did it on purpose because they don't want to use the footballs. So McMahon's holding an Uzi. Yeah, I see that. That's on. Un- <laughs> it's so fitting though for that concept. I mean, it's it's almost like real Miami Vice. <laughs> I know. It, and the funny thing is, is the the NFL um, 
the NFL, we knew them from from doing the Real Men Wear Black shirts from the Raiders. And when we told them we wanted to make posters and they wouldn't give us a license. So we said, okay. So we just did it outside of, you know, with no logos or anything. And we realized it's the player that sells it. And so, you know, since the NFL wasn't wasn't going to give us a license, I wasn't really worried about the guns in it. And it's funny because when you think about it, I wasn't, this is 1986, there wasn't any outcry. Not, I mean, everybody, the, the poster got a lot of publicity and there wasn't ever a news article where somebody going, well, this is a little questionable content because the NFL players are, are holding guns. It was because they weren't promoting guns Nobody was assuming that it was going to make kids go out and, and buy guns and shoot people. You know, to uh, no, there was there wasn't there wasn't the overanalyzation of like every yeah. image like there is today. Yeah, the twenty four hour yeah. news cycle, which is well, and another thing too. I mean, I, I wonder how many people were just like, yeah. I mean, those aren't real guns. They wouldn't shoot them with real guns. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? I mean, because I think that would just be my yeah. default <laughs> assumption. Well, I just, I, just, I just think now about doing something like that. It's the same way just having a live bear cub in, you know, next to a, a ball player with a contract of that size. You just couldn't do it now. Or you wouldn't even, you wouldn't even think about doing it and saying, could we? You would simply just adjust because your mindset is already that we can't, uh, we can't, we can't do that. And with the guns, you know, that you just like, it's like somebody would go nuts. Somebody would go nuts, even over things that aren't anywhere near that, that, you know, like having guns in the player's hands. Right. There, there would be stuff today that you'd have to, you'd have to over scrutinize it yourself to make sure that you're not offending anybody. And, yeah. and it's still going to offend somebody. <laughs> yes. Yes. Somebody will be offended, you know, I mean, I don't know what armed or the, the Russell Wilson, when we did this one, you know, it's armed and dangerous. The dangerous was is his spelling, the R-U-S-S, which is his Twitter name. And and we had to make sure, even on the warning sign, one of the warning, you know, the foot, the ammo boxes are filled with footballs. Right. Okay. And we even had a sign that said, you know, danger, high, highly explosive offensive weaponry, you know, um, but we we had to change. We had to put a football on that sign to make sure that nobody complained. And knowing, look, we're saying that it's actually football weaponry and that kind of stuff. We even were worried that that you know we we had to debate you know among the group that we do highly expensive offensive weaponry or highly expensive offensive weapons. Are we going to get in trouble for using weapons or do we use ordnance? You know, we just, we over we used to overanalyze what font we were going to use. Yeah. And now we're overizing, analyzing all of this. But well, speaking of that, I mean, back then, did you have secondary concepts, or were you just going in like, if this doesn't work? You know, I think that we had concepts that we just we worked hard enough to. I mean, okay, designated hitter with Ronnie Lott. Um, that's easy because we. I mean, it's kind of a good name for him. The enforcer, Kenny Easley, it was a great name for him, and so and Mad Mac was great for McMahon. So we would come in generally with one concept and say, because we wouldn't go to a player unless there was something that we, that we, that, you know, that we didn't feel really strong about. But also it wasn't something where you could just like um, text him or his agent and say, hey, what do you think of this? And get constant feedback. It was something where, you know, you got to pick up the, a landline somewhere and call him. Right. And, and get a hold of him and convey it that way. So, 
so there wasn't like little bits of feedback. It was go all the way with something. So I think that we went all the way to a drawing with something only when we really felt something was good. Right. Yeah. Well, and so you did mention earlier about the licensing aspects of the business. And I think if you look at today's athlete, um, the word brand is is kind of overused today, in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people yeah. don't understand what it is. and But I mean, these athletes now, I think that a lot of them do tend to have a general sense that they're, there's the team brand and then they are their own brand as well. And in a lot of cases, you guys, I mean, like for Sean Kemp, you, you created, to, to my understanding, you created the Rain Man uh, nickname for him, right? Yeah, and that was done by a guy, like by Tom Reese that I spoke about earlier, Tom Reese, uh, who's, he gets, he, I, I always want to make sure that I credit him with it because people will still say, like, credit me with it. Um, and it wasn't me, it was Tom Reese. He, he created the Rain Man and I, I talked to Sean a, a couple of years ago about it and he talked about going to the NBA All-Star game and, and having guys come up to him and say, man, we love your poster. And he told me, he goes, I don't know if you know this, but I'm in the All-Star game, and all the All-Stars are talking about each other's Kostakos Brothers posters. That's and, awesome. Uh, that was kind of fun. And Sean said, he said, look, when I came to Seattle, I wanted the veterans to respect me, and I wanted the fans to love me. And he said, I realized that they loved it when I dunked. And he said, so when you guys gave me the Rain Man, he goes, that's who I wanted to be. I wanted to slam it down. I wanted to be the Rain Man. Yeah, and it, I mean it was fitting for the area too, just like it, the stereotypical always raining sort of yeah. in Seattle kind of thing. I remember <laughs> yes. I, I had no clue that that you know, and I think it's cool because a lot of these. Uh, I mean, you were essentially in that day and age. This was a huge part of their brand. If you think about today, like their Instagram account, they're running it themselves, and it's a part of their brand. But this was like their visual image that they're you're creating for these people and putting out there aside from what they see in the news, which was not 24 seven like it is today. Yeah. There was even, there was even back then a, there was a commercial. I think it was the team. One of the team you know, advertisements was, was done with the rain man and, you know, things like that. That's kind of fun, you know, to have created something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and you know, some of these people you struck up, some pretty good friendships with, and it seemed like you guys were pretty close with Charles Barkley. Can you talk about that a little bit? <laughs> yeah, Charles was great. He was he was good fun, and, he, and you know what the thing I mean, is, he came that to guy, one of your family events, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, he, he came to my Christmas party. They had an overnight at my um, at, uh, yeah, and they had an overnight, an extra night, and so uh, he called when he was in town. I said, "Well, man, my Christmas party, you want to come?" And he said, "Sure." So when I found out he was coming, I told everybody. Okay, no autographs, okay? Don't ask your picture taken, no autographs. Got it? And and so and I had like 125 people through the house on the overall night. Everybody stayed once they knew he was there. He came in, he, he took my Santa hat and said, I want a beer. And he was the life of the party, as you would expect, because yeah. he's actually, he's a really fun person. Yeah. He's very smart and he's really fun. And he loves to give, he loves you know how guys like to give each other crap? That's kind of what we do. Charles does that as well as anybody. And if yeah. you're good at giving it back to him, yeah, he, just ribbing, he likes you. Good-natured ribbing yeah. each other, yeah. Well, you know, it's it's funny because like he he sort of had that persona 
you know, when this is this would be my childhood when I'm growing up. So he had this persona of sort of just being a, a real mean, like kind of jerk. I mean, I just remember the Nike ads, yeah. like I'm not a role model, whatever. But then you watch him today on like the way that him and Shaq and Ernie Johnson interact. I mean, it's hilarious. It, you, it's like yeah. you want to hang out with these guys. That he is like that. We. I'm trying. To, here's where because he, my sister worked on the on the PR side and she handled the player relations um, in the early years and yeah. and she's she's little and what happened we we didn't have a, we had his, we had a uniform for him to shoot the get off my backboard yeah. <laughs> uh, poster and this was after he won the rebound that guy's six three and a half and he won the rebounding title. that's He's insane not, yeah yeah and so but, he could get up so, too I mean the guy yeah. could rise like yeah and he he my sister. So here's she's like she's not even five feet tall, right? She's tiny, and so we're at the studio and we're shoot we're about to shoot and we realize we got the the uniform, but there's a, we don't have a jock for him to wear, and so we're like okay, and she says I'll run out and get one, and she starts heading for the door and she turns around and she goes small or extra small, and Charles started laughing. <laughs> I remember right? seeing that in the documentary, and so um, and that's what that. That's when I saw him laugh for the first time, but because up until then he was all business. Yeah, and so she was the one that that <laughs> kept in touch with him. So I didn't really talk with him. I didn't know him that much. Yeah, and then one time, um, it was it was in '92, I think. Yeah, it was a dream team thing. They were down. I think it was in San Diego. So we went, we went, and I didn't realize I didn't know him that well at this time. So we all went out to dinner, and he, I'm trying to remember. Yeah, so I was driving, and he was in the passenger seat, and my sister and her husband and her friend, and Andy Bernstein, who was NBA photographer, the Lakers photographer, and the NBA photographer, he was in the back seat. And Charles just started giving me crap about, um, I don't remember what he gives me crap about, and because he, he just does this, right? And right. I don't know him that well. And he <laughs> said, um, so wait, where were you last night? I said, I had a date. And he said, uh, a date? He said, what do you do after 30 or 40 seconds when it's all over? And I said, well... I kiss your wife goodnight, and then I go home. <laughs> and I thought he was going to hit me. I thought I'd gone too far. I thought he was going to hit me because I saw him turn towards me, and I looked at him, and I figured, okay, he's not going to hit me because I'm driving. But he high-fived me. <laughs> he said, good one. <laughs> and so that, that That's was funny. the beginning of that. But yeah. we, got him, uh, we got him good on, on uh, probably the best practical joke I've ever played in my life um, was – he had a phone call. This was in '93, the year he won the MVP. I think it was the year he yeah, won the MVP. Yeah. So he had this. Um, Madonna called his hotel room. He he. The phone rang. His hotel room it was in the middle late late at night. And I went there with my girlfriend, and he picks up the phone and he says, "Hello." Oh, hang on a minute. And I thought it was my sister just calling back because we had called my sister and left a message for her. And he hands me the phone. He says, "Say hello to Madonna." So I I talked to Madonna for. I don't know, three, four minutes, which was wow, kind of funny. Wow. Then he got off the phone, and my girlfriend's like, are you out of your mind? You're hanging, you're hanging with Madonna, you're going to end up on the cover of People magazine. And, and he's like, no, no, uh, we only hung out once, and nobody saw us. And and, and Nikki was going, yes, yeah, somebody saw you, somebody saw you. And um, he goes, no, really, they didn't. So she scared him a little bit. Anyway, they came back a couple of weeks later for the playoffs, and so um, I went and bought a National Enquirer, and I found some pictures of him and of Madonna and scanned them. And most people 
I mean, at that time, 1993, had never even seen a scanner, really, or heard of one. Yeah. And so this, all that kind of stuff was brand new. So um, I was going to go give this brandly new, perfectly doctored National Enquirer. The, the, the girls at the office did an amazing job with it. And so it looked real. And so my sister was having lunch with him at the Sheraton. And so I was just going to go sit down and go, hey, look what I found. Say hello and have a good laugh. But I was late. So I go into the... I'm walking through the Sheraton and standing in the in the right middle of the lobby is my sister and some other people. Well, as I get closer, I realize she's standing with his teammate Frank Johnson, Frank Johnson's wife, Joanne Fitzsimmons, who was his GM's wife, and Phil Knight from Nike. And my sister says Charles went upstairs to get a different shirt to get his picture taken for for uh, it was Esquire magazine. And I said, Oh great. So I gave it I'm trying I gave it to my sister and I think I don't remember if, if the wife or the GM's wife uh, gave it to him. So I went and hid behind the plants. Charles comes down and she hands, hands him this thing. Well, the headline had a picture of Madonna and huge letters that said, I'm having Charles Barkley's baby. <laughs> <laughs> so it had a picture of her kissing him on the cheek or something. We, we put those together. It said, basketball star says Madonna is his new MVP. <laughs> and I think we took about 10 years off of his life. <laughs> he, he looked at it, dropped an F-bomb, and looked up at everybody, and nobody even cracked a smile. And he thumbed through it really quick, and he looked at it again, and he, and he cursed again, and he put his hand up at his temple. He goes, this is bad. And then he looked up at everybody, and nobody even smiled. He said, is this a joke? And then I figured he'd had enough, and I came back. <laughs> <laughs> came out to the open. <laughs> so this uh, is so in front of Phil great. Knight? And ever, and all yes. Wow. Yes, that was the best part of it. It was right in front of Phil Knight. That's crazy. So you guys, you... you uh, you you did your thing for like what ten years, there the, ten years, yeah. And then you you kind of from according to the SB Nation thing, it seemed like you kind of got burnt out a little bit. Well, it was it was um, we rode a really good wave, and you know we may have created some of the the new creative. Uh, John Bellow, who was the head of NFL properties at the time, he said, um, uh, "You guys made us realize that maybe we could take a few more chances," and. Um, and that was kind of nice to hear from him. But yeah. I, we that wave, whether we had anything to do with it or not, I don't know. But there was a wave of a big increase in licensed sports products. And there were some other things that the hip-hop culture had, you know, embrace the starter jacket and all that. And right. having all that stuff was really cool. So the, the sales were going up massively each year. And then they started to level off because it just you can't just sustain that type of growth. And they were putting pressure on us at the league uh, level to do more players and constantly do you know sell more posters mm -hmm. and we were all we did was live breathe sleep posters all we wanted to do was sell more posters find more markets do new things with them and and it, it was that kind of pressure coming it wasn't really fair to us and we had the nba telling us that we had to do 108 players well we're competing for a limited amount of real estate on kids walls you right. know they have only so much wall space, and they're going to buy the bigger stars. We know this, and yeah. we knew it from having created a great poster of a player who might be in a smaller market or who might not be – he might be a great player, but he's not loved by the fans like the other player. And so they that kind of pressure was – it was they're basically telling us you got to do 108 guys, of which, from our knowledge, we're going to break even on a fair number of those. 
we're going to make money on a few of them and we're going to lose money, a lot of it, on right. half of them. And so those kinds of things were made a little bit rough, but we could have weathered that, but it became really clear. One of, somebody at one of the leagues basically told us, listen, we want, there's a lot of the, the, there are a lot of the larger licensees are buying the smaller ones and we want that because it makes it easier for us to manage. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and they were threatening to raise our royalty rates and things like that. And it just, it got to the point where it was, it wasn't as fun, but it was still viable but it seemed like if we stuck with it, there was a decent chance that it was going to be made really hard for us to continue to, to stay in the black. Mm-hmm. And and so it was more of a, somebody made us an offer and we said, yeah, let's do it because it was, it was a fairly safe move because things were not going in our favor um, from the way the licensing uh, culture was changing. So what I mean, it, when they when that happens, and you guys, did you continue working and creating, or was it they're essentially buying like your intellectual property? Um, it was it was the licenses and the distribution into the sports uh, into the sports business, sports you know retailers is really mm-hmm. what they wanted the most. Yeah, um, we had at that point we had really good. So uh, we had took a while to get it, but we had a really good culture of designers, and and I was. I was not designing or creating much. I might create a nickname or if I came up with a concept, mm-hmm. I was in on that sort of stuff, but not nearly as much. And so I knew these guys could, we all knew that, that the group of guys that, that were still, uh, guys and one girl actually that, that were making those were, they were very capable of continuing on because it had become something where we weren't, uh, putting the players in the studio anymore. We were buying the action shots and doing right. things with those. And so they were very capable and they wanted to make sure that that, that group was going to stick around and, and especially Tom Reese and uh, my brother uh, on the business side, they wanted to make sure they were there. And so it wasn't uh, it wasn't creatively dependent on me anymore, which was great. I was a consultant for six years, but they really didn't need me. The 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 group that we had, we'd created a good culture, and they knew what they were doing. Yeah. So what what did uh, what did you guys do? I mean, up until now, especially that Vox feature, I'm assuming that that was pretty well received. You guys kind of start hearing from people after that. Yeah, it was kind of fun. A lot of people I hadn't talked to for years got in contact with me, and then. Uh, and you guys were featured on NFL Films at one point too, right? Yeah, yeah. NFL Films did did something. The SB Nation did did a really nice. Amy K. Nelson did a really amazing story. I, I was she she really liked our story, and I, I was really happy. We were all really happy with that. And uh, Sports Illustrated, a guy named Chris Ballard, <coughs> Chris Ballard did something nice, and so we were, it was kind of nice to have that and to go. But when Adam Shopcorn calls up and says, "I want to do an art exhibit with your stuff in New York," you know, we're like. Art. <laughs> we didn't know anything about art, you know. Yeah. And um, and it's funny because so we go out there for it, and and it was his collection, and then it sells out on opening night for twenty five hundred bucks a piece, right? And you know, but it was fun. It, that wasn't the great part. The great part was seeing people of all generations. You know, yeah. you saw kids and and middle aged people and and grandparents all walking through and looking at that stuff, and the galleries jammed. And and our friend, it was the other fun part was our friends, uh, who are all, all these crazy Greek guys from the Bronx, uh, 
the the German Akos brothers and the Mamias brothers and these guys they these guys were our friends and they were extras in all the on all the stuff that we shot there. They're all the extras in the background of the, the Lawrence Taylor poster and the Carl Banks poster. And so and, and they came and assisted on the shoot. So here these guys are, and they're bringing their kids through now, and they're like, you know, pointing to the poster. Okay, there's me in the background. There's Uncle Nick, you know. <laughs> yeah. There's Uncle Teddy, you know, that kind of thing. It was really funny. That was good fun. Well, that's awesome, man. I mean, I think, like, for me, sports, and this is why I'm so passionate about sports and and design and creativity there are only two things in my opinion that really sort of stamp a visual or or uh, i guess in the case of music uh, an audible um sort of stamp on place and time and sports visual uh, sports memorabilia is part of that right i mean we look at these and we're like you can remember your childhood seeing the, I, me personally i can remember my childhood seeing that jordan poster or now you know I, I think and i would go to you know get drugged to walmart or whatever grocery store with my mom and then she'd be shopping and i'd go straight to the posters and just flip through these things yeah you know those guys were I, we understood from being fans as kids that the the, the ball players to you when you're a kid they're bigger than life you know, and then you, you grow up and you meet a bunch of them like we did, and you realize they're just like anybody else. But when you're a kid, they're bigger than life, and no matter what age you are, what they do is bigger than life. And so we, you know, we had a, we had some things that we wanted. We made sure that their names were bold. The, the name and the title was in big, bold letters, and we wanted to make the guy as big as possible in the frame. Yeah, and and that was something, you know, and it's it's really fun, you know. Hearing from people or talking to people, running into friends of friends who tell me they had the posters and they'll remember exactly which ones they had. And that, I mean, I think every kid, whether it's rock and rollers or, you know, or, you know, girls in swimsuits or uh, motorcycles or athletes that you love, those things that are on your wall as kids, you remember those forever. Yeah. And that, the way you had your room, I mean, who doesn't remember what they had on their walls when they were a kid? Well, did you guys ever get, I'm curious, because a lot of this stuff, I mean, these could have basically been Nike ads. And so because you're sort of creating a catchy copy or nicknames and then doing like the art direction and the photography, did you get requests to actually become almost like an agency or did that ever cross your mind? I mean, you already had that. The Costacos brothers already sounds like an advertising agency during that time. <laughs> well, we had... There was a Nike contacted us in the very first year. Um, a guy named Harry Johnson con- contacted us, and they wanted to have us uh, do their posters, and um, or he did. And so I met with him twice, and and we were working on something like that, which would have been perfect for us because we're in Seattle and they're in Portland. And I think he understood that we kind of got what we kind of we understood it. We knew we knew how to do that. We knew how to do something fun with the player. And actually, the guy who's like my real hero in this, his name's Peter Moore, and he did some of the Nike posters. He did their posters before. He did the 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 Iceman poster. He created oh, yeah. Yeah. a whole. I think he was he may have been the guy that created the Air Jordan, but he he was the creative guy there that did their posters. And so well, I had these meetings with Harry, and then he got abruptly transferred like a job promotion i think he moved to korea and he let me know and then the guy that was uh following in his footsteps uh contacted me and so we met with them which is a little bit crummy because uh 
we pretty much shared our secrets on how we how to distribute and how we did everything. Yeah. And uh, they said, okay, thanks, but we're going to do it ourselves. So we never really got around to doing that, although um, we we kind of kicked their ass in the marketplace. Yeah. Actually, we really kicked their ass in the marketplace, mostly because all we did was posters, and they were a huge company, and and posters are a really difficult product to merchandise, and you got to move really quickly to sell them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're an impulse buy. And so we did it so well that we ended up distributing their posters by the time we sold the company. <laughs> that was oh, kind of nice. fun. Yeah. That's interesting. So it's uh, it's you know about twenty years or whatever, and it's it's kind of a roundabout way you go back and do a poster for Russell Wilson of the Seattle Seahawks, Seahawks and uh, all the proceeds go to his charity Why Not You Foundation. I'm curious uh, how did that how did that come about? What was that like? I mean, did he reach out to you guys? And and then also you know <laughs> what was it like technologically? Because now obviously this thing's created in Photoshop as opposed to the past well technologically it was like having been a world war ii fighter pilot and being able to go back in time and fight again with an f-18 <laughs> it was like <laughs> it's 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 just like it's unbelievable compared to what it was like so on one hand you have so much capability on the other hand we had so much capability that it made it harder to make decisions on what are we going to do? You know, what do we do here? What do we do there? We weren't limited. So when you have so many options, it's hard to decide on which ones. But here's how it came about. It was three years ago as they were making their run to the Super Bowl. It was, it was the year before. Yeah, it was the year before that. No, uh, no, sorry, Super Bowl year. Um, I was watching the game uh, earlier and my brother and I were talking about it and we always do this. We be you know, we're on the phone watching a game, or do you see this guy, or what do you think? Here's here's what this guy's poster would be, or here's what that guy's poster would be, you know. And we just talked about that, and so we were like, yeah, wouldn't it be fun to do something with with the Legion of Boom, Russell Wilson? And so I contacted Russell's agent, Mark Rogers, and I told him, and and he he was familiar with our stuff, and I said, look, I don't even have an idea yet, but. When I do, I, would you be interested in doing one? He said, yeah, let's talk about it. And so over time, you know, I'd text with him or call him and we'd have some meetings or we had one meeting and uh, we finally got to the point where he liked it and said, let's do something, give us a bunch of concepts. And we gave him a list of about 20 and, um, and they liked, uh, this was the one they liked. And so it was, and so the whole thing was to, to raise money for his foundation and, uh, Turned out to be pretty good because the release party uh, that they had for it was an amazing event that his foundation put on. And it was the first major event from the Why Not You Foundation. And they raised, I think, a total of $450,000. And that's before the poster even went on sale. And so that was that was really nice. It was a great event. And um, it was fun. The, I wanted to make sure we had a picture. They brought in Steve Largent. And, and Steve Largent came in for it and... And Brian Bosworth, who were, you know, two huge stars in Seattle. But the, we have a picture of each one of those guys holding up their posters. So there's Largent, whose poster we shot in 86. Bosworth holding his poster that we shot in 87. And Russell holding his poster, who was born in 1988. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> did, he, did he understand, like, was, did, was he familiar with, because uh, he's younger. I mean, born in 1988. Yeah. That's... 
I didn't. I don't know if it was because of this, or I don't know if he was familiar with it before. But he really knew our stuff. He, That's awesome. He, he knew all about it, and so he knew it was kind of a mo- a, a, a monumental thing. You guys are coming out of <laughs> retirement after twenty yeah. years to yeah. to do this. It's like almost an honor, you know, in his for a guy his age now. I think that's something he liked about it. He, but he, we were we were suggesting. We said, listen, maybe we shoot you in the uniform, and maybe we do this a little bit this way, do some special effects that way to to make a little bit more update. And he's like, no, no, we're going. I love your old stuff. Let's do the old. We're going old school Costacos Brothers. So he walked in when we had we had we were going to shoot a couple of different things. We were going to try and see what. what it looked like in his uniform. So we're going to shoot him in a uniform. We had all three, you know, Seahawks, blue, gray, and white uniforms. Uh, and we had the, uh, the combat fatigues and that kind of stuff. And he just said, no, this is what we're doing. He wanted to go, go old school. Yeah. Stockos brothers. Cause he said, I want to, I want to pay tribute to what you guys did. And, uh, and we'll do a throwback poster. It'll yeah. be fun. Yeah. I mean, you can tell that you're, it's obviously created in Photoshop, but you can tell that you guys are trying to tie in sort of that old, old yeah. sort of hardcore look of things in the background and yeah, it almost was, outrageous. <laughs> you know, the outrageousness of it all. There was something funny because he, he wanted to dirty himself up and, you know, uh, and his, uh, so he, he sends one of, one of the, I think the makeup guy, he said, look, or he said, we got to get, we got to dirty me up. We got to look like I've been in battle. And so he sent somebody outside to get some dirt and then they mix the dirt with some water and they're rubbing dirt all over him, right? So he's grimy and dirty, and then they put the eye black, and it's all over his face, not just under his eyes. And whole deal. And when we were going over the the shots, and I sent what we felt were the best shots uh, to his agent, and they're like, "Well, can we see some of them without the dirt?" You know, and, and well, we don't have it without dirt because <laughs> Russell wouldn't let me shoot it without dirt. <laughs> Russell, he's he's fun that way. He's like he. He knows what he looks like. He knows what he wants to do. He knows what he doesn't want to do. He's like, no, I want to do it this way. And I'm like, hey, you're the boss. So did you did you sit down and learn Photoshop things in Photoshop to create this thing, or was this did somebody else work on it? No, so we had we had uh, we had somebody else work on. It. We had we had a couple of different people mm-hmm. uh, working on it, and and it was uh, it was more like I know enough about what you can do, and so we just had a lot of debates. Should we do this? Should we do that? Um, what can we do with the background? How should we shoot this? Should we shoot fog in the background now uh, to see how that special effect looks? Because we can always cut them out of it, you know. And and because we wanted, we were really thinking we had two options on the background: just kind of a big explosive fire behind him, or which would be created in Photoshop, but would maybe enhance by having um, fog with with orange gels shot through it in the back or you know do we do it that way or do we just do it on a stark background and put the background in there uh which would have been the stadium which is ultimately what we chose had you kept up much with the visual side of the sports industry i mean college schedule posters are have been the rage for some that's how i really got my start in sports design then you have like season ticket designs and now social media and all these kids on instagram that are making things on their phones what are your thoughts like as today's visual landscape in sports? I think it's really cool because so many more people are, are capable of doing it. There, there was a time that, that a lot of teams were interested in having us create, you know, some things for them like giveaways, you know, giveaway posters and things like that because you, 
you know, you didn't have somebody. When we started doing this in 1986, there wasn't any way of doing anything in-house. So you had to have, you know, everybody had professionals outside doing it. Mm-hmm. And so slowly I wa- got to watch, you know, the teams would eventually hire somebody to do their visual stuff. And now you look at what everything that can be done with Photoshop, the amazing things that can be done. There's so many more creative people being able to do creative things. And it kind of bums me out a little bit that nobody's doing these kind of bigger than life, uh, you know, posters uh, that, that are the iconic type of posters that people get framed and keep. Or that years later they're like, oh man, I hope I still have that in a box somewhere. Um, you know, it's interesting because a lot of teams now have these in-house design, you know, in-house career departments. And I mean, these, these people, you're cranking out so much work now that it, it almost makes me wonder how many people just kind of take it for granted. Because it's a very easy thing to do when you're, when you're working in an athletic team. And, you know, a lot of these people are underpaid and working crazy, <laughs> crazy hours. Um, you know, but you are still essentially, like we were talking about earlier, stamping a visual aesthetic on a, a certain moment in time. You know where I see a lot of really cool stuff? You see a lot of, I, th- I see it on the internet or people will send it to me. And for instance, there's, there's, you know, there's no definitive licensed Legion of Boom poster that I've seen that is, you know, a really cool visual. And there's no, you know, something like that. But if you look on the internet, there are kids or sports fans who are taking images that they find and, and creating a really amazing stuff like that. And so I, I like that. I don't know if there are the professionals doing it. I, I would imagine some of them are, and some of them are just fans doing, doing stuff. I, I saw somebody took uh, Russell Wilson. They took the Captain America there's a poster. It's a Captain America poster. Uh, I think it's yeah. It's a promo poster for Captain America. And you know, there's this dark, cloudy background, and he's standing there with his shield. And they just put Russell's head on it, changed the colors of the shield instead of red, white, and blue to to you know they changed the to to the Seahawks blue and green, and you know Captain America. And they just made yeah. a Captain America of Russell and th- that kind of stuff. It's fun to see people do that. Yeah. What well, there's a. There's a lot of like recruiting, they call them recruiting designers that work for say a college football team and they will send this type of stuff to recruits. So it'll be, um, you know, if the kid's favorite superhero is the Hulk, they'll sort of Photoshop the kid as the Hulk oh <laughs> and my. send him this stuff. So it's like this whole, it's, it's crazy where this world has gone. And, and especially, I mean, these kids now on Instagram are, they're creating some of the stuff on their phones. They're not even using Photoshop. There's like three or four different apps, and they're just making these things, <laughs> and it blows yeah. me away. I mean, some of them are, are are obviously very amateur, and you can tell that they created them on their phones. But then some of these kids end up getting pretty good. I think it. I think it's fun that way. And and um, if I were ever to start uh, on, if I were ever give this a try on a, on a larger scale, I would probably want to um, have contests like that. And say, all right, this is the title that we're going to do. We're going to do something with Philip Rivers. Uh, uh, we're going to call it General Electric, and it's going to be some sort of a. We want a, a general. We want to make him look like a general. Here are your photos to work with. What do you think? You know. Yeah. Yeah, I think that kind of thing would be would be really fun. Yeah, I mean, you it know? could be, and then you know, you may end up. Uh, it's 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 always such a toss up with those things because, you know, you may end up with half the. 
you know, you may end up with some people that are talented doing that stuff. And then you may end up with a lot of sort of the professionals that are like, oh, we, we don't want to do like contests or whatever, that type of thing. It's always been like kind of a touchy thing in the, in the creative industry is these design contests. But I just think in general, the fact, the fact that there are conversations around sports and design and art direct and this type of art direction is, is awesome. I mean, their general consumers are noticing this stuff now a lot more than say in the past, I feel like. Yeah, I, I see I see what's going on at the at the team level a lot. I'll see some amazing photos. Just absolutely amazing photos that people are, are, are making. Like I see them on the size of the side of the stadium and that sort of thing. And that's really impressive. I don't see it in the licensed uh, sports stuff as much. Yeah. The teams are really, social media has really allowed these teams to push out some stuff. If you ever get a chance, check out um, the Miami Dolphins have one of the best, in my opinion, creative teams in sports. I mean, they're, they're cranking out beautiful photography, their Instagram account, really trying to tell their story. And then obviously, you know, off on the field, it's tough because us as creatives, you can't control what's happening on the field. <laughs> That's true. But you can do the best that you possibly can to help tell their story off. And, and those guys really really do a great job down there. I, I would love to check out what they're doing because this kind of stuff fascinates me. Whenever I drive by the Seahawks uh, Stadium or, or uh, the Mariners Stadium, I look at the stuff that's up on the walls. And so a lot of times I'll be watching TV, I'll be watching a game, and some of the things that they cut in with, the visual stuff that they cut in with, um, uh, it's fun to watch that. And I love seeing where it's going because it, it has this, it, look, it pops off, it pops so much. And I think it's really exciting. A lot of times I'll see somebody I'll be watching a game that clearly somebody at, at uh, you know Fox did or something that's coming on the Fox broadcast and a visual of the players. I'm thinking that would have been a great poster right there. And yeah. I just think it's fun. And you know, all it really takes is someone who loves it, who says, all right, how do I push the envelope? How do I do something cooler? Right, that's what yeah, I think. Absolutely. You have to love, you have to love, you have to love sports in order to yeah i think you need to love sports you need to understand sports um in order to just the little nuances and i mean there's just so much ephemera and in uh just the visual aspects of sports it's just historically i mean it's i love this man i mean this whole thing is the whole reason why i started this podcast to being able to have these types of conversations but sort of uh and and i know you got to get uh your seahawks are are going to be on soon so i don't want you to hour. okay (laughs) but i do want to ask are you, I mean, are you guys back? Like, you know, you launched the website, Costacos Brothers, this new poster came out. What do we, what do we expect? You know, what's to expect in the future? Well, I don't know. The, there are some, I've had some people contact me and I've spoken, I've had some nice conversations with people and I think it really comes down to this. Will the players, do the players want to go shoot in the studio with me? And, and if yeah. they do, then there will be more of this. And if they don't, they probably won't. Because one of the things that's changed back then, and Sean Kemp talked about this back at, in the previous time, the players, this was one of the ways that they could market themselves, right? right. Mm-hmm. But now they can self-market. They needed somebody you know, like us to do something like this because the distribution was so difficult, mm-hmm. right? But now you can send visuals. People can get it all over their phones. So the players all have a Facebook account, a Twitter account, and their own website, and so they can market themselves in so many ways that that uh, it's not going to make as big. It's not going to make the gigantic difference that it would have in the past. I still think that that 
if I work with somebody, I'm still going to make the image that that they will be happiest about having made, you know, when their career's over. I've had guys that I've run into or that I've talked to call, you know, call and ask me. You know, we've got over 100 Hall of Famers in that we did on posters. I had guys call and say, hey, do you have any more of these? And like, yeah, I got a few I can send you. You know, that sort of thing. And Yeah. And, um, but they'll say it was my favorite thing I did, you know, and, uh, you know, somebody else sent me something recently. I forgot what player it was. And, and they said that, I think maybe it was Barry Sanders or something. And somebody said it was one of the favorite things they did. And so, yeah, I still think I could, I think I could hold up my end of the bargain. The question is when they're making the amount of money that they are, is it worth it for them to spend, you know, an hour or two in a studio with me? Yeah. And that's really a question that that only trial and error. I'm going to have that answered within six months. Well, I think I think uh, what you guys did honestly is you create a brand. I mean, the Costacos brothers was a brand, and obviously you were working on these these kids athletes brands, you know, creating their posters. But having a Costacos brothers poster during that time period meant something, and it meant something to actually be asked to shoot a poster during that time period. So it almost, in today's day and age, it's almost like, I think if athletes understand that, they'll willingly do it. That's just my opinion. To understand sort of like the historical aspect of it and the fact that this these posters were on their walls. I mean, they had to be at these age groups. Of course, I guess some of these kids now are so young. I mean, 20-year-olds. Some of the younger guys don't, but but the older ones would. And, and the thing is, Look, we went out the Pro Bowl every year. The Pro Bowl was the greatest. I mean, it was a great business trip. You go out there, sit on the beach after practice with the players in Hawaii, and talk about what posters you're going to do the following year. And then they, I had all, everybody's home phone numbers, and so I could call guys and say, "What do you think of this? What do you think of that?" And the player interaction was really, really helpful. And but now it would be, I'd need the players' input. And they're so busy that would make it a little harder. Mm-hmm. But it was, it was. I, I think that I think that we could do it. It's just a question of whether or not. I mean, here's one one story that I remember. I, I remember clearly. I was walking out to the beach and somebody called my name and I hear this Costacos Costacos Brothers. There's a guy with his back to me sitting at the bar at the outdoor bar at the Hilton Hawaiian Village and. He, he gets off his bench. He goes, wait, who's a Costacos brother? And I said, I am. And he says, I want to do something with you guys. And it was Emmett Smith, okay? Yeah. So, I mean, to have that, to, to have made that kind of impact and have that guy want to shoot something with us, the question is, can we do that again? And the only way to do that is to make, I think, make a couple more that, uh, that the players like that much. So yeah. I, don't, I don't know. It's kind of it's a little scary and and fun at the same time to say yeah I'll roll the dice I'll talk to a few people and see if if they want to do it if I can get them in the studio then I'll do what we did back in the day which is to over prepare and make sure we get something that that hopefully uh, people like yeah well absolutely man well listen I uh, I personally big thanks to you for uh, influencing 
me to kind of go into sports design in general, even if it was a subconscious way and I didn't necessarily know who made these things, but to, but to kind of go back and find out like, wow, these guys really had a big impact on the reason why I do the stuff that I do today. So big thanks for that. And then also just for taking the time, man. I mean, we had a great conversation the other day. It's a pleasure getting to know you and hearing more about your story. And I hope that, uh, hope that everything works out in the future for, for the Costacos brothers. Thanks so much, man. Uh, wrapping up, why don't you just give listeners, uh, speaking of the future, where can they find you online? Uh, reach out, say hello, give compliments, spy work, that kind of thing. Uh, the website is costacosbrothers.com, and that's costacos.com. Awesome. And, and, and the website, we got it, it's, it's new, and it's got a little, we have a little bit more work to do, and, and I'm, I, I've written bios on the posters. So those are going to be coming up soon. We'll be adding more posters and the bios about how we shot them and, and all and generally the funny stories that came along with, with, <laughs> with them. Like when the police showed up for, <laughs> because there was this, there was too much smoke coming out of the studio. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, uh, that's what makes it all worthwhile, man, being able to see those, see those. And I'm, I'm very happy that you're able to share some of those with myself and, and our listeners. So again, best of luck for you going forward. And, uh, with, uh, listeners, definitely go check out costacosbrothers.com. And then John, you also have a Twitter account, Costacos brother, twitter.com yep. slash Costacos brother. Yep. All right, man. Appreciate your time and, uh, go Seahawks, I guess. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> My next guest is going to be Olivia Brestel. You may know her work from the MLS team FC Dallas. However, recently she moved to Kansas City to work for Sporting KC as the creative lead. Olivia is a very talented designer and photographer and has spent the majority of her post-grad career working in soccer. You can follow Olivia on Twitter at Olivia Brestel. Uh, that's O-L-I-V-I-A. B-R-E-S-T-A-L, where you'll find a link to her Behance profile in there as well if you happen to want to check out some of her work. Big thanks again to John Costacos for taking some time to come aboard the podcast. Definitely check out these guys' work. Uh, as a kid, I didn't really pay much attention, as I mentioned, to who created the posters that adorned my bedroom walls. But in some way, I definitely do attribute the fact that I'm involved in sports design to those guys. They were truly the pioneers of the visuals we see uh, today pre-Photoshop. To follow John, as he mentioned, head over to twitter.com slash Brother, and also check out their website, costacosbrothers.com. If you're interested in hearing more Makers of Sport episodes, then head over to makersofsport.com slash episodes to check out previous interviews or listen to the original halftime episodes where I discuss things like business, entrepreneurship, and freelance in the sports industry. As mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, halftime episodes since episode 65 are available to paid community members only. If you want to support the podcast, you can join the community at makersofsport.com slash community where you'll get future halftime episodes and their transcriptions, private Q&As with future former and special guests, monthly Google Hangouts, and an invite to the live chat in the app Slack, which is where a lot of us spend a lot of our time. And there's some great conversations going in there. In addition, you'll also get the opportunity to take part in the high school project, which is a pro bono branding project that community members are taking part in for underfunded high school athletic programs around the U.S. More on that particular initiative can be found in episode 75, which is called Donating your creativity. All community content is recorded and available at any time you join, including the private Q&A sessions. 
You may have noticed over the fall that we've had quite a few Snapchat takeovers. Uh, Meg Majera of the Indianapolis Colts, Ashley Strauss of the Tennessee Titans, and John Willie of the Miami Dolphins. Those are an absolutely great way to look into the day-to-day of working creatives in sports. So please be sure to add Makers of Sport on Snapchat to see more of those stories from other creatives that work in the sports industry. Now that's basketball season, I hope to have a few basketball takeovers as well. So more on that soon. That'll be announced on Twitter for sure, but definitely follow the Snapchat account, Makers of Sport. I do want to reiterate that the podcast is listener supported and not sponsor supported. You'll never hear ads on this show or have to hit the 30 second skip button in your podcast to speed through sponsors. So if you do get value from the content coming from this podcast and its outlets on social media, email newsletters, or other areas, then I ask that you please consider supporting the show by voting with your hard earned dollars and joining the community. In exchange for that fiscal support, there is premium content and a network of like-minded creatives in the sports industry ready for you to interact with. For casual listeners, have no fear. The interview episodes will be free forever. And you can still support the podcast by leaving reviews, tweeting, or sharing the show and signing up for the newsletter. Speaking of that newsletter, uh, you will get the podcast show notes delivered right to your inbox and a weekly newsletter called Weekend Reads where I write exclusive content and share the things I'm reading, the things I find interesting or things that inspire me. That did kind of slack off during the fall. I was coaching two soccer teams, so apologize about that. We're going to kick that thing back up again, ready to roll for the winter. Uh, in addition, on that email list, you will be notified in advance of upcoming guests. So by going to makersofsport.com slash email, just enter your email address to stay in touch with the happenings of the podcast and its future. If you do want to review the show, and these things help a ton, so please take the time to do this. Head over to makersofsport.com slash iTunes. It takes one to two minutes max. Hit the five star, write about your experience with the podcast. If you've gotten value from myself or any of the guests on the show, then please rate the podcast so that others can discover that value for themselves as well. As always, I'll accept likes or ratings in Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast application you enjoy listening in. I'm at T. Adam Martin on all social media, including Twitter, Snapchat, and pretty much everywhere else on the interwebs. The show is at Makers of Sport. Happy Thanksgiving to U.S. listeners. Until next time, have a good week. Good week.